Hi, my name is Jill. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 32, 4 through 6. The rock, his acts are perfection. No doubt about it, all his ways are right. He's the faithful God, never deceiving. Altogether righteous and true is he. But children who weren't his own sinned against him with their defects. They are a twisted and perverse generation. Is this how you thank the Lord, you stupid, senseless people? Isn't he your father, your creator? Didn't he make you and establish you? The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Pam. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 2, verses 12 to 15. Therefore, my loved ones, just as you always obey me, not just when I am present, but now even more while I am away, carry out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God is the one who enables you both to want and to actually live out his good purposes. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, innocent children of God surrounded by people who are crooked and corrupt. Among these people, you shine like stars in the world. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Martha. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand and it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Father God, we don't want to be stupid and senseless people. We want to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We need your help. So come, Holy Spirit, help us, your people, your kids, to live out your ways in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. It's good to see you. Maybe you seated. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm the associate pastor here at New Life Downtown. If you're visiting with us this morning, thanks for being here. If you're watching online, hello to you. Digital greetings. Uh, this is uh, my first Sunday back. I was gone last week. Uh, I was in Iowa. Uh, don't have to apologize for that. It's, I made it. Um, but I was there to actually officiate my nephew's wedding. Uh, which was super fun to kind of be there with family and have that opportunity to officiate his wedding. But I was reminded, as, I was, as I'm reminded so often when I meet with couples as they're preparing for their wedding day, just how exhausting weddings are. Like, not just the wedding itself, but like everything to get even to that point is exhausting. I mean, think about just how hard it is to meet people in today's world. Like, we're so connected, and yet this is incredibly difficult to do. And much less to, like, ask someone out on a date. Like, this seems to be like a Herculean sort of effort to sort of like, do I take this risk? Do I not take this risk? And then, you know, if that goes well and you get a second date, and the whole dating thing is just 
is that if you get through that and you get to engagement, then it's you get to trade all of the angst of dating for all of the angst of wedding planning. You know, like, is this the right dress? And did we get everybody invited? Is there any family member whose address we couldn't find that's going to be offended that we didn't invite them? And we're going to hear about this for the next 40 years. Uh, what, you know, all of the venues and food and all of those kind of things. And then if you get through all of that, then you've got the actual ceremony itself. And there's the rehearsal and then the dinner and the parties and then the full day with manicures and makeup and hair and dresses and people and ceremony. And you're like, ah, like by the time it's all done, people are just tired, so tired that you can walk out of the ceremony and feel like this is the finish line. Like, that's it. Like, we made it. We're done. Like, that's it. But it's not. <laughs> like, you made it to the starting line at that point. Everything else was just training, you know, up until this point. The finish line is like 50, 60, 70 years down the road when you're sitting in rocking chairs because you can't stand anymore and you look alike and you talk alike and that's the finish line. It's way, way out there. But imagine for a moment, though, if we like thought the other way, if we sort of are in that moment where you're, you're leaving the ceremony or you're leaving the reception and all your friends and family are gathered there and they're loaded with, you know, bird seed or bubbles or sparklers or, uh, you know, whatever it is you, you decided. When my wife and I got married 15 years ago, we had the brilliant idea. I should say I had the brilliant idea that we should throw shredded coconut. I have no clue why I thought this was a good idea. And I was a youth pastor at the time. So really what I was doing is I was arming teenagers with bags of coconut to throw at me as quickly and as hard as they possibly could. And then my wife had to suffer the consequence of coconut being everywhere. But imagine you're in that moment and you're running out, people are chucking things at you and they're celebrating and there's the car that's been shaving creamed or whatever and everyone's excited, you're getting ready to go and then you just stop like, that was great, thanks. Like we're married now, so I guess I'll see you later. And you just leave. Right? Like, are you married at that point? I guess. Like, you're technically married, but it's one thing to be married, and it's an entirely other thing to live married. Right? And if we take that analogy, that's oftentimes what a lot of people do with faith. Right? We had this moment with Jesus where we hear about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and someone shares the gospel with us and in this moment maybe in a, in a church service or at a conference or at someone's kitchen table or something that someone shares with you and you're like, this is what Jesus has done. Do you, do you want to say yes to Jesus? Like Jesus has done all of this and he said yes to you. He says, I do. Do you say I do back? Like, do you want to be in on this thing? You're like, yeah. Like, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want, I want to be a Christian. And so you say a prayer or whatever, and then you're like, all right, Jesus, thanks. Bye. And just go on. It's like it's one thing to be saved. It's another thing to live saved. It's another thing to sort of live that out. And that's what I want to talk to us about today is what does it mean for the saved to live? How do the saved live? What, what happens after I do? What happens after the prayer? What happens after 
we believe? What does that really look like? And we're going to look at that through what Paul's talking about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there and follow along, or there'll be stuff here uh, on the screen. We're actually in the middle of a series right now called Complete Joy. It's a series walking through the book of Philippians. And here's where we've traveled so far. We started uh, sort of looking at Paul opening the letter and greeting people. You know, he's naming who he's writing to. He's giving thanks to them, and he's praying for them. He's letting us who these people are and what his relationship is with them. They're his companions in the gospel. He's praying for certain things for them, which show us a little bit of his pastoral heart for them. And then he goes on, he talks about his circumstances, that Paul's actually in prison, and he's awaiting trial. And the outcome of that trial might be his release, or it might be his execution. And he's talking about what that might mean for himself, and what it means for the Philippians, and what his hopes are for them as a community, as a church. And he transitions from that, and he says, okay, with all of that, said, here's what I want, is I want your life to match the message. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's really saying, I want your life to match this message, and not just match the message, but really match the master, to match Jesus himself. And last week, we actually got to the real heartbeat of the letter, which is this song that Paul includes in the middle of this section as he's talking to the Philippians. He tells this beautiful song about who Jesus is. He says, listen, I want the same mind to be in you as was in Christ Jesus, who, being equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself. And he traces the whole story of Jesus from his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, saying, this is who Jesus is. He's the king above all kings. And last week, Pastor Glenn showed us how this particular song really helps us to see that Jesus is truly God. Then when we look at Jesus, we're actually beholding God himself. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He, we want to know what God is like. We want to know what God is like, what he looks like, what he does, how he acts, how he is. You look at Jesus and here is our picture. So the song highlights that Jesus is truly God, but it also highlights that Jesus is truly human. He's also truly human that if you want to know what humanity is supposed to be like, about what it's supposed to mean, what it means to be truly human, that we also look at Jesus, that Jesus not only reveals who God is, but Jesus reveals who we are and who we were meant and called and created to be. And Jesus gives us a picture of what God's intention for humanity. So Paul focuses this lens for them. He says, look at Jesus. And then he resumes his conversation with them about how it is that they're supposed to live. So, okay, in light of Jesus, now, here's how we're supposed to live. Here's what I want you to do, which is interesting because at this point, Paul really starts diving into what we might call ethics, right? This idea of whenever we start talking about how people should live, it's really getting into this complicated sort of arena of philosophy known as ethics that deals with the ideas of what is good and what is not, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, what is even legal and what is illegal, and all of the conversations around that. How do we determine what is a good life? What is a virtuous life? 
And then, correspondingly, how do we achieve that? How do we obtain that? How do we live the good life? How do we live the virtuous life? And as we dive into this text, I want us to talk really quickly, though, about two ways we normally approach this question. Now, this is way oversimplified, so all of the PhDs in philosophy in the room, I'm sorry, uh, you can correct me later on <laughs> in the conversation. But there's two general ways that we approach this. One way that we approach this arena of ethics is talking about an external standard, that really the good life is about living up to an external standard. Right? What's the good life? Well, just do the right thing. Follow the rules. Here, you need to know that these are the good things, and then you need to do those good things. Live up to this. Here's the standard, and we can define that standard in a variety of ways. There's a ton of approaches to determining what is that standard that we might call good. But really, the moral life, the good life, is living up to that standard, just doing it. Like, just do the right thing. Just follow the rules, obey the law, like, stop doing the other stuff. There's nothing more to it than that. Except that we can't. <laughs> right? We find that we can't do the right thing in the right way at the right time all the time. Right? We try and then we fall flat on our face and it's like, ugh. So then we, you know, respond in one of two ways. We either start to sort of, you know, rank things. Like, well, this is, this is more of a good thing than this is. And so we'll just kind of eh, correlate everything like, okay, we're going to like not kill people. Um, but lying, like that's not as big of a deal as killing. So, eh, you know, so we like re-rank it and we justify, or we just live with crippling guilt about all the ways that we fail, all the ways that we don't hold it up. So this is one approach, just live up to an external standard, which we find impossible to do. The other idea is to live into an internal identity. And this is becoming quite popular kind of in our day, in our culture. It's this idea of just be authentic. That the good life, the virtuous life, is an authentic life. Like, just be yourself. Like, do what you feel is right and good and true. That whatever is in here, live that out. That's the good life. It's getting in touch with your inner self and allowing your outer life to match your inner self and just doing that. So this, this idea of sort of self-discovery, just going in and saying, okay, who am I? What do I want to do right now? What do I feel is right? What do I feel is good? What do I feel is true? Okay, I'm going to do that. And yet we find when we look inside, it's like, well, I don't know. Who am I, really? Because <laughs> I look in and I'm kind of confused. And at times I'm conflicted and I felt this way yesterday and then I feel this way today. So which one's me? Which one's my authentic self? Which one is the, is the, is the real me? And how do I figure that out? And then we add to that sort of mix this idea of that there's times when we're like, okay, I'm going to live this out, and then we find that it actually makes us or other people less human. Well, I have these prejudices inside of me, and I think this way about this group of people, and so I'm going to be true to myself, and I'm going to treat them in this particular way because that's who I am. That's who I think they are, so I'm just being me. I'm just being true to myself. I'm just being authentic. This is what I actually think about those people, so I'm going to live that way. 
Or we do things like, well, what I really feel like is I feel like escaping right now, so I'm going to get drunk or I'm going to get high. And that's like authentic right now. That's like me being real. So I'm going to do those things. And then we start doing and saying a bunch of things that aren't actually us. And the people who care about us are like, what are you doing? Like, this isn't you. Like, that's not the best version of yourself. It's like, ugh. So even in that, we have this whole, like, struggle about trying to figure out who we are and feeling unsure about that, feeling conflicted about our desires and our emotions. And then even then, we've got to sort of live that out socially and relationally. And so even this, we find, yeah, we can't really do that either. And so we feel like we just keep falling into two pits, going, I don't know what the good life is, and I don't really know how to live it. What's interesting, though, as we dive back into the letter from Paul, as he's talking about what is the good life and how do we live it, he's not talking about either one of these things. See, no, 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 there is a whole nother way of being. There's a whole nother way of life that is offered to us in Jesus. And he starts talking about that, what that is. And so in Philippians chapter uh, 2, verse 12, he starts talking, he says this, he says, therefore, my loved ones, just as you always obey me, not just when I am present, but now even more while I'm away, carry out or work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Notice the very first thing that Paul does here is that he reminds them of who they are. He recalls their identity to them. He says, therefore, my loved ones. He starts out talking and reminding them that they are loved and that they are saved. Elsewhere in the letter, he calls them saints. He calls them his brothers and his sisters, those who have been rescued and redeemed by Jesus, those who have been brought into Jesus's family, those who are deeply loved by the God of the universe, who are loving, who are loved by one another in the context of their community. He says, you are the ones who've experienced encouragement in Christ, comfort in love, and who've shared in the very life of the Spirit of God. This is who you are in Jesus. See, our identity is not found in ourselves. It's found in Christ. This is where we find out who we truly are. Remember that hymn? And we said that if we want to know what it means to be truly human, we look at Jesus. It's the same way for us. We want to know what it means to be truly human, to be truly alive, to know who it is that we are and who we were created to be and what we were, our lives were intended to be like. We look at Jesus. We don't look into the dense fog in our own souls. We look at the one who shines his beautiful light on that and begins to show us who we really are in him that we are loved, that we are saved, that we are redeemed, that we are filled with the Spirit, that we're brought into His family. This is who we are. And we're called to figure out that identity. Paul even says in another letter, he says, you know, what I mean? this is what life looks like. You need to take off our old self and put on the new self, which is created to be like God and righteousness and holiness. In other words, take this off, put Jesus on. That's who we're meant to be. That Jesus is the one in whom we figure out who we are. 
And what happens for us so many times, even in the best-intentioned ways, is that we can let other things define us besides Jesus. Even in things that can be really good and helpful, things like personality tests, which can be really good at helping us to understand certain things about us and ways that we can connect with God or maybe uh, blind spots that we might have about ourselves that God wants to work on or understanding other people and how to engage and relate with them or knowing how it is that God might have wired something in us so that we can learn to live in some different ways and knowing kind of a little bit more about what we might need in a certain situation or circumstance. Those things are fantastic. But what happens is, is that sometimes we reduce ourselves to a number or a couple of letters. Like, you are more than your Enneagram number. You are more than your Myers-Briggs com combination or your disc profile or whatever it else it is. Those things can be helpful, but they do not define us. What defines us is the fact that we are the sons and daughters of the living God. That is who we are. We live out that identity. Those other things can help understand us, but they do not define us. My friend Rick Anderson, who was here in the first service, in his Enneagram workshops, he starts them off and he says, listen, this is going to be a helpful tool, but what you need to understand is that you are an amazing soul created by an amazing God. You are an amazing soul created by an amazing God. Amen. This is who you are. Are. So therefore, my loved ones, he starts in that space, recognizing where our identity is found. And then he says, now here's what we do. We live out our identity through obedience. We live out our identity through obedience. He says, carry out or work out your salvation. Work out your identity. Work out your, the reality that you are in Jesus that you have been saved and set free and redeemed and rescued and filled with his spirit. Work that out. This is obedience is actually how the saved live. That the saved live lives of obedience. Why? Because that's how Jesus lived. We look at the center of that song and it says, Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's obedient. That this is the good life is found in this. He didn't go about life trying to please himself or serve himself, but he went obediently and voluntarily gave his life up for others. But here's what happens. Sometimes we hear this word obedience and we're immediately thinking, oh, okay, so now there's a list of rules that we need to memorize and know them and then like live up to them. All right? It's like a Christian version of strategy number one. There's an external standard, and now once we know what it is, now we say, okay, thanks for letting us know that, Jesus. Now we got to live up to that. This is not what obedience is, what Paul's talking about with obedience. He's not talking about adhering to a set of rules. He's talking about submitting to a person. It's about living in relationship with a person. He's talking about bringing our lives under the reign of the righteous and rightful king. He's saying, okay, behold, Jesus. Okay, Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to draw close to you. I want to be in your family. I want to keep company with you. I want to be close to you. I want to learn from you. I want to be with you, Jesus. Say, this is what this looks like, is by drawing close to him, the one who comes close to us. 
and being obedient to the one who's been given the name above every name. Being obedient to the one to which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord and saying, okay, you're the king, so I want to be a citizen in your kingdom. I'm going to submit to you. I want to follow your ways in the world. In other words, he says, hey, submit to the one who saved you. Like, this is who we're submitting to. It's important to know this because if we flip it the other way and think it's just about adhering to a set of rules, then we start to think is that we're working for our salvation. That's not what's happening here. Paul says, he doesn't say uh, work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. We don't work for our salvation, but we do work it out. We don't work for it. It is the free gift of God. It is his grace to us, but we do work it out out in our lives. In other words, we take the gospel and we translate it into action. We put it into practice in our lives. We're called in the midst of the gospel to actually go about our daily lives in different ways, to actually start to learn what it means to live saved. Now that we are saved, how do we live saved? How do we actually live out all that it is that Jesus has accomplished for us? And Paul says we do this with fear and with trembling. In other words, this isn't like haphazard or casual. Like, ah, maybe. I'll think about that later on. No, it's a call to be reflective and intentional and to behold Jesus. Think, okay, Jesus, what would it look like if you ran my business? Jesus, what would it look like if you were a friend with this person? Jesus, what would it look like if you were parenting this child? Jesus, what would it look like if you were a coworker with these people? What would it look like if you were married to this person? How would you live that out? It's an intentional, reflective, uh, very like uh, serious endeavor. Fear and with trembling. But here's the danger in that. Sometimes we think with fear and trembling, that means, well, that means it's just all on us again, right? So it's still just, like, we're going to holy ourselves by our own bootstraps, whatever that means. Like, we're going to suddenly, like, form character in us through our own efforts. That's, again, that's not what Paul's saying. He does not say that. He says this is not just a Christian version of living up to a standard about trying harder, No, Paul says this is about receiving the help that's available. Receiving the help that's already there. He says it this way. He says, God, God, God is the one who enables you. He's the one who enables you both to want and to actually live out his good purposes. God, the the Greek literally says, God is the one who works in you both to want and to actually work out of you. But God is the one who's doing this. That actually he's doing something in you and then enabling you to work that out. It doesn't mean that God does it all for us, but it does mean that he supplies us with everything that we need. There's a necessary sort of empowering that happens in us. Earlier in the letter, Paul said that the one who started a good work in you will complete it. We'll carry it out. We'll finish it because he's continuing it. And the way that he does so is through the Spirit. See, what God works in us by his Spirit, we can work out by his Spirit. What God works in us, 
by his spirit, we can work out by that same spirit. For those of us who have been in the charismatic Pentecostal tradition or churches uh, at any point in our life, we like to talk about the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit's like, that's what we're going to talk about. And oftentimes when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we love talking about the Holy Spirit in terms of gifts and offices, right? Well, the Holy Spirit has given that person or given me the, the gift of tongues, or I have the gift of prophecy, or I have the gift of healing, or the office is like the Holy Spirit has made me a pastor or apostle or prophet or teacher or an evangelist. Like this is when we, we emphasize all the things that the Holy Spirit wants to do through us for other people's good and God's glory, which is awesome. Like those are things that are actually critical to being followers of Jesus together. We need the work of the Spirit doing these things in our midst. The New Testament talks about them because they're important. But you know what? The Holy Spirit also is the one who empowers us to live differently. He's also the one who doesn't just do stuff through us, but does stuff in us. The one who changes us and transforms us and makes us more like Christ. And in fact, Jesus, Paul, and the New Testament writers are more concerned about the latter than the former. They're more concerned about what the Spirit is doing in us. If not, we end up in situations where God's gifts and call and all those things take us to places that our character can't bear. And we see people stumbling morally all the time. Highly gifted people, but no character transformation that's happened inside of us. Cares about this other part of us. Paul is really spurring the Philippians here to holiness, to character, to the fruits of the Spirit, to love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And I don't know if I said those in the right order. He's calling us to that kind of life and telling us to participate with the Spirit in becoming Christ-like. But I can tell you, this does not happen overnight. It doesn't happen immediately. It's not easy. There are times, I, hear, I love hearing testimonies where you hear somebody that went forward for prayer about something and God showed up and the person walked out of that moment. It's like that desire, that thing was just gone. And they just, it's amazing when that happens. It's just not, it's rare. It doesn't happen all the time. I wish it did. I mean, there's several things. I'm like, God, could you just do this? Just zap me with something? Like, put me in some sort of Holy Spirit microwave and take care of this part of my character, and let's just be done with that. Because this other way is harder. <laughs> but that is the normal way. It's slow, and it's steady, and it happens over the course of time. Most lasting change happens slowly. And so the invitation, I think, that this text invites us into is this, is to ask a couple of questions. The first question is that we should always be asking is, what is the Holy Spirit working in you? What's he working in you right now? What God-given desire? What passion? What conviction? What interest? What sort of, what do you feel like God's sort of stirring up inside of you? And oftentimes, it's one thing. Like our friends or our family, our coworkers might want it to be everything, you know, might want, or might want it to be a different thing that they hope changes right away. But this spirit is gentle. He says, all right, here's the thing I want to work on right now. 
here's the thing I want to show you. Here's what I'm working in you right now. This is, this is what we're focusing on. We're, we're doing this thing right now. What is that? What's, what's he working in you right now? And then secondly, how is the Spirit helping you work that out? How is he helping you sort of live that out in little ways? It's sort of like the movie, What About Bob? Where you're just taking baby steps with the Spirit. Like, I'm just baby stepping my way toward this thing. But just, just little by little, we're going to get there. What's the Spirit doing and how is He helping you to live that out? The way He normally works things in us is by spending time with Him and His people. As we're reading the Scriptures, as we're praying, as we're seeing worship, as we're uh, experiencing the sacraments, as we are coming to the table, as we're talking with other Christians, as we're singing songs, that all of a sudden, like, something just starts to pop all the time. Like, ah, this thing keeps coming up. And I'm wondering about this, or I'm, I'm feeling this thing, or, and he's just kind of doing that. So the way he normally works those things into us, and the way that he normally works them out is that what happens is our character starts to form, and then our behavior follows. Our character starts to form, and then behavior follows. In other words, we become more Christ-like, and then we act more like Christ. It's typically how this goes. So let me give you an example. Say, for example, if you know like part of the Christian life is forgiveness, there's one way to do it. You say, well, just forgive people. There's the external standard that we need to live up to. Like, but I don't feel it. <laughs> there's the problem with the internal identity. Right? So here's how this normally goes, is that we come to know Jesus. We come to know what it's like to be forgiven. That we start to feel the weight of our guilt and our shame coming off of us. We come to church each week and we hear the good news that in the name of Jesus, we are forgiven. As we sing songs about forgiveness, as we have even other Christians forgive us for things, all of a sudden we start to know what that's like to be forgiven, to experience God as a forgiving God and to know ourselves as forgiven people. And then what begins to happen in the middle of that is all of a sudden something starts to change. And sometimes it just looks like suddenly we have uh, more patience for the things strangers do. You get cut off in traffic and all of a sudden you're like, hey man, you're good. Your horn gets really lonely. You know, it's just wanting some love. And you're like, I just, I don't feel the need anymore to get angry at strangers who didn't see me in the rearview mirror. Like, oh, that's an interesting thing. That's changing inside. I can forgive strangers for silly things. And then over the course of time, as we live more into understanding God's forgiveness on our own, then all of a sudden it becomes easier to forgive the, the immediate sort of wounds of people close to us. Right? I, I, I really messed up there. Thanks for saying that. That hurt, and, but I forgive you. So we start to do that. And then later on, what happens is those deep wounds that come to us from moms and dads and people who've hurt us or abused us in our lives, and suddenly it's like, oh God, I, I, I think you're wanting me to forgive them. I don't know what that looks like. Also, the desire is there. And then he starts teaching us and showing us what it means to work that out. And oftentimes the first step is just like, I don't want them to die anymore. Right? I'm just giving up on vengeance. And then it turns to, well, maybe I have some wonder about what happened in their life that made them do that thing to me. And suddenly compassion's there. And then slowly... There's forgiveness. It's how these things happen. Or maybe it's an issue like generosity where you hear somebody say, well, you, you got to give 10%. And 
There's a lot of people who give 10% who aren't generous people. And it doesn't actually mean anything's changed inside of us. The way generosity happens in us is that we spend time with the generous God. And he starts showing us his generosity, all the things he's given to us. Like, oh, this and this and this. And really, oftentimes, what he's doing is helping us to see what was already there, right? Just start showing us stuff. We're like, oh, yeah, that too. And then as we start to see things, and then the other things happen, and we start to interpret them as the generosity of God. Oh, that's, that's God bringing that into my life through this person. Oh, I gotta see that. And then we start being grateful for that. Like, oh, thanks, God. Thank you. Thank you. And like gratitude starts to happen inside of us. And then as we're grateful, suddenly we start becoming content with what we have and we start desiring things differently, right? It's like, you know what? Maybe I don't need the iPhone 11 right now. Maybe my 10S is fine for a little while or 10R or whatever it is. I don't have to camp out for the newest and latest. I'm, I'm kind of content. But this is actually a good working phone. I'm okay. And then all of a sudden, contentment starts to go into opportunities present themselves. And you're like, I want to give to that. I've got this extra cash now because I'm not spending it on all the latest, greatest sort of stuff. And what I really want, I want to give that to this. And all of a sudden, what happens slowly over time is that somebody looks at us and says, you're really generous. You're starting to display the character of God in the world. That's how this happens. The Spirit works in us and then helps us to work that out. He concludes his conversation, he says this way, he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, innocent children of God, surrounded by people who are crooked and corrupt. Among these people, you shine like stars in the world. So what happens is, as we live out our salvation, Paul is encouraging us to do so without grumbling and arguing, not to be obedient and with a bad attitude. <laughs> Because uh, what Paul's doing here is he does so often, he's pulling from the Old Testament. He said, you know who the grumblers and the arguers were? It was Israel. God brought them out of Egypt and took him into the wilderness, and he was taking them to the place that they wanted to go, but the whole time they were just like, food was better in Egypt. Right? They're just grumbling, complaining, and resisting. They were rescued, but then they just resisted. And so what Deuteronomy describes it, it says they were guilty and blemished, crooked and corrupt. And then Paul flips the scripts. He says, don't respond that way. He says, instead, respond with joy, with celebration, participation, lean in, say yes, even when it gets hard. Keep saying yes and keep thanking God that he's changing you from the inside out. Keep leaning into that. He says, then you'll be blameless and pure. You'll be exactly what God wanted Israel to be. And then you'll shine like stars in the heaven. In other words, your lights will give light to other people. It'll be the way that God brings his light in the world. This echoes that gospel reading where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So stay salty and shine brightly. In other words, be who you are and do what you are meant to do. That this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit helps us to be who we were meant to be and helps us to do what we were meant to do so the whole world might see what God's like by looking at us, seeing Jesus. Because we've looked at Jesus and learned who we are. And the Spirit of God began to do work in us and changed us from the inside out. And that's what we do when we come to the table each week. We come to the table confessing the fact that we need help. 
We can't just do this on our own. We can't will our way into character. Can't will our way into holiness. The Spirit of God can do something in us, can change our desires, and they can help us to start to live in ways that we never thought were possible. We said yes to just participating in Him in every little way that we could along the way and seeing what it is that He does. And so as we come to the table, we come with it like that, saying, okay, Spirit, here we come. Help us today. Show us Jesus. Remind us of who we are and help us live that out in obedience as you give us both the will and the ability to do it. Let's pray.